Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Now we find ourselves with our, you know, species like lesser prairie chickens and other grassland birds and, and other grassland species with their backs against the wall. And so at what point do we say, okay, let's protect those last best places, let's protect the last 10% or whatever it may be. And the North American Grasslands Conservation Act would do that. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is Aaron Kindle. Today we have an interesting guest, probably on a less than happy note for, for wildlife lovers, but nonetheless, we're happy to have him. I guess today is Ted Cook. He is the North American Grouse Partnership Executive Director, and he has a long career in endangered species biology with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He's also a lifelong sportsman, and as I said, he's the Executive Director of the North American Grouse Partnership, and we're going to talk today about the lesser prairie chicken. How's it going today, Ted? Great, Aaron. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I'm glad you can join us. And as I said, uh, we are here on a little bit of a sour note, I think. Um, Yesterday, which was May 26th, this will run on the 28th, but yesterday the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service uh, decided, uh, brought out a proposal to list the lesser prairie chicken under the Endangered Species Act. And so we're going to talk with Ted about what that means, how we got here, and uh, first, we'll start, Ted, like we always do when I remember, <laughs> uh, with what you've been doing outside lately. We try to start on a happy note and think about the good stuff. So 
give us a little little flair of what you've been doing outside. Well, uh, of course, uh, it's uh, the end of turkey season here in Idaho, where I live. And uh, unfortunately, I've not been able to get out very much. I got to take a couple of kids out. One uh, young woman shot not one, but two turkeys this spring. And uh, another young man got out and didn't get one, but uh, we had a pretty good adventure of it. And uh, uh, but unfortunately, I've not been able to get out much for myself. I'm, uh, of course, doing this work with Ross Partnership and uh, uh, my wife and I are also building our retirement dream home here in Idaho, and that's taking a lot of energy. But uh, a turkey hunting, and uh, this weekend I get to go up and go uh, lake fishing uh, down on the Idaho-Nevada border for big rainbows. Well, that's great. Spring is that that time of year. Uh, got out a couple times with my boy trying to get a turkey, and I haven't been out too much lately. I got a greenhouse recently and spent the last little while building that baby. It took took a bit, and it was late, and finally got it all planted, and we're we're happy about the gardening aspect. But we'll probably get out this weekend. It's the last weekend of turkey season. Try to get out one more time here. Well, good, Ted. Let's let's take a look at what we're what we're gonna do here today. The lesser prairie chicken. Let's start out with a lot of folks. I don't think know about this bird. Its range is not huge. It doesn't cover a big chunk of the United States. Why don't you just give us a little background on the history, the life history, what this bird is, and, and why we should care about it? Um, so the lesser prairie chicken is uh, one of four prairie grouse species that the North American Grouse Partnership is focused on primarily. We we include all North American grouse, but prairie grouse are are focused because they're the most uh, greatest conservation concern. So that includes greater prairie chickens, lesser prairie chickens, which we're talking about today sharp-tailed grouse and sage grouse, which are threatened in many ways. So uh, lesser prairie chickens are a priority right now because they're doing better than, uh, for example, heath hens, which became extinct a century ago there in the Eastern US, uh, and Atwater's prairie chickens, which are critically endangered. They were uh, wiped out in the wild and we're trying to reintroduce them now. Lesser prairie chickens are kind of next in line threat-wise. Uh, but uh, greater prairie chickens, sharp-tailed grouse, and sage grouse are all in decline. And fortunately, we can still hunt those last three species. We cannot hunt lesser prairie chickens or atwaters or heath hens, obviously, anymore. Uh, and so the Grouse Partnership is trying to maintain those opportunities for sportsmen and women to be able to continue to hunt prairie grouse, uh, particularly in the sport of falconry. Prairie grouse are, are the species of interest. And so uh, there's a lot of a uh, long, uh, rich tradition of uh, hunting heritage for prairie grouse. Uh, the lesser prairie chicken specifically is in the southwestern Great Plains, primarily five states. So that's Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, and a little bit of southeastern Colorado. Uh, and they've been uh, wiped out from about 90% of their historic range. Uh, there's about uh, four or five uh, remaining population centers and some of those are becoming um, endangered as well, which is why the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has proposed to protect them under the Endangered Species Act. Thanks. And maybe the next appropriate question, Ted, is how we got here. Um, you know, I know in Texas particularly they've struggled, uh, and, and now they've actually kind of grown a little bit in range, it looks like, in, in Colorado, but, you know, still declining in number. 
let's talk about that situation, how we got to where we're at, you know, maybe the history, what were the numbers originally and then what are they now and, you know, what, what happened in between? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So, uh, you know, like most plains wildlife, uh, including for example, elk, if you look back at Lewis and Clark's journals, um, plains wildlife used to be phenomenally abundant bison, um, and lesser prairie chickens were no exception, you know, millions, tens of millions, uh, maybe hundreds of millions of birds in the past, maybe not hundreds, but many tens of millions. Uh, during the Dust Bowl days of the 1930s, uh, prairie chickens uh, declined severely uh, and then rebounded rather spectacularly uh, due to conservation efforts to try to, to try to protect soils from eroding. Uh, since then, it's been a steady decline, however, uh, primarily conversion to agriculture uh, and then other factors like urbanization, roads, power lines, uh, chip away and fragment and reduce habitat quantity and quality. Lately, things like oil and gas development and then particularly wind energy development is really hard on prairie grouse because prairie grouse, all four of them, the greater and lesser chickens, uh, sarpies and sage grouse do not like tall structures. They evolved being away from anything tall where a raptor might perch. So yes. You put up a wind tower, that you know, big tall yeah. turbine that eventually pushes grouse away for a mile or more around it. And so these are, you know, long-term, near-term, these are all the factors that have uh, fragmented and reduced the amount of habitat for lesser prairie chickens. And, you know, for, for lesser prairie chickens, just like for most other species, the issue is habitat and we're losing it and we're fragmenting it. And lesser prairie chickens are really a landscape scale species. They need large open spaces, contiguous spaces to survive. Yeah, that's, I, I'm more familiar with the sage grouse and, and, you know, sometimes people think, energy development, the traditional energy development is the only problem. Uh, and, but we've seen in, in Wyoming, particularly, there's a lot of, uh, push to develop wind and, uh, what Wyoming holds most of the sage grouse that are left, the greater sage grouse. And there's some implications to that as well. So those aren't, you know, just helping people understand that those aren't without impact too, particularly for wildlife, I think is important. Um, well, well, what about, Ted, the, this, this listing, you know, what, what brought us to that moment? Why, why did we decide now we need to list this species or propose to list it? Well, the species, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service actually found that listing was warranted back in uh, 2013 or 2014. I forget now. Uh, and they listed the species. Um, the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, that's an organization that includes all the Western states, fish and game agencies, developed a plan and uh, a mitigation program to go with that plan. Uh, and then also, you know, identified farm bill programs as tools to use to conserve lesser prairie chickens, which are the right tools, right kinds of tools. Unfortunately, farm bill programs and the mitigation program, uh, have failed to deliver but in the meantime, uh, after the service listed lesser prairie chickens, a judge reviewed WAFWA's plan and said, well, with this mitigation program and the farm bill programs, that should be good enough to conserve lesser prairie chickens. So he vacated the Fish and Wildlife Services listing mm -hmm. decision from 2014. Um, 
But unfortunately, the mitigation program and the farm bill programs uh, have failed to produce uh, in a pretty significant way. In fact, habitat loss has been precipitous in the years since, unfortunately. And they're good efforts. You know, WAFA deserves credit. USDA farm bill agencies deserve credit for trying. But it's been far from adequate, uh, which has led the certain. And so uh, environmental groups wanting to preserve the last best places of southern Great Plains prairies uh, petitioned the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service again to relist grouse. And today or yesterday, really, the service has found that that petition uh, is warranted and they're proposing to list lesser prairie chicken. Yeah. So what what are the next steps with this? What does it mean for, for people who care about prairie chickens? You know, what, what should we be paying attention to and what should we expect to see now? Great questions. Um, you know, many times people see uh, a, a proposed uh, Endangered Species Act listing as bad news. And it is in the sense that things are so bad that we have to protect a species under the Endangered Species Act. That's just nothing but bad news. Uh, some other people, though, perceive uh, regulatory concerns or you know, bureaucracy getting in the way of doing good things. And uh, in this case in particular, I, I think in most cases, but this in particular, I don't think those are really concerns. In fact, maybe they're advantages. Because um, one, is going to draw attention to the plight of Southern Great Plains prairies, not just for lesser prairie chickens, but a recent study found that the greatest decline in all bird species across North America is with grassland bird species. So there's a host of other grassland birds that uh, have declined along with lesser prairie chickens. Uh, there's also soil uh, quality and quantity, water quality and quantity, even carbon sequestration are all issues that can be addressed by working to conserve this landscape scale species, lesser prairie chickens and their habitats in the Southern Great Plains prairies. But uh, anyway, the, so the service proposed yesterday to list. There's a one-year process before they either write a final rule and the species becomes listed, or they change their mind based on public comment and other new data and say, okay, the listing's not warranted. Uh, then once the species is listed, they can uh, develop guidelines and programs to facilitate their recovery and, and try to focus more funding there. And that's where I think the real opportunity comes. Um, a lot of folks are concerned about and regulation under the Endangered Species Act. But in this case, I don't think that's a big deal. 95% of lesser prairie chicken habitat is on private lands. And a lot of them are small uh, family farms and ranches, really ranches because the farming is too poor in the areas where chickens are left. All, all the good chicken habitat is good farmland and has been converted to ag, you know, uh, tilled ag already. Uh, and so uh, what I think we can do is support those landowners that support that have these last vestiges of habitat and help them keep it that way, which I think a lot of these landowners want to do that. It's no coincidence that these landowners still have chicken habitat. So that's one thing we can support them. The other thing is, uh, you know, the, the lingering threats or the, or the continuing threats, I should say, of say oil and gas development or wind energy development, where there's a federal nexus, say federal permitting, those would be affected by a regulatory process. But what I think we can do there, I, I was, what I learned in my 30 year careers as an endangered species biologist is uh, businesses want predictable, stable regulatory environments. One way to get that is no regulation, but another way to get that is sensible regulation applied evenly, say across five different states, which WAFWA's mitigation program couldn't do, right? 
And so uh, I think we have an opportunity to work with oil and gas and wind energy companies to say, okay, here's what chickens need. Uh, if you want to put a wind energy farm in the middle of the last best remaining chicken habitat, that's going to be super expensive. But if you want to move it over three miles, that, you know, that's, that's more doable. And so that's to me, sensible regulation. Uh, and I've seen it time and time again in my career, and I think it's what's needed here now, sensible and consistent. Cause that way, not one, you don't, you don't have one ener wind energy company getting a special deal over here with one state and then another wind energy company being cut out over here for other reasons. So, so that, so I think those are some of the advantages that may come with an endangered species act listing. Great. And what are we at? Like 30,000 or something is, is the estimate of the population. Is that accurate? Yeah. And so but roughly, you know, it bumps up and down around there. And of course these population estimates are, you know, estimates. Um, and, and, and so as habitat has been lost, bird numbers have not declined as much as you would think. And, and, and the reason there being, I believe, because of the good work that say the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies has done with their mitigation program that's really focused on habitat quality, which is important. And so that's been a good feature of that. It's not addressing the main threat of habitat quantity, but to the extent that it's addressing quality, it's helped to keep bird numbers from declining too much as we lose habitat. Um, and then also, you know, some of the farm bill programs that continue to perform, um, although enrollment and things like the conservation reserve program is beginning to drop off dramatically and is a real concern. Um, but yeah, so we're around 30,000 birds holding steady. If we can turn the corner on habitat quantity, one, stop losing, two, gain habitat back, these birds can, can make the rebound. Well, that's good news. Um, how long ago was it that they were last hunted? Ted, do you, do you know? Oh, gosh. Uh, good question. I know states closed season a few years before 2014. I'm going to say maybe late uh, 2000 aughts, however you say that. Yeah. Were you, a, were, have you been able to hunt them? No, I wish I'd been able to hunt them. I've been able to see them on their leks, uh, and I've been able to hunt graders and sharpies and sage grouse. Uh, in fact, the, the first bird, my, uh, now five-year-old yellow lad ever retrieved was a, for me, was a sage grouse. In fact, my, all my buddies shot grouse. She had a mouthful of grouse feathers that day, sage grouse feathers, but no, I've never been able to hunt lessers. Yeah. Nice. I, I spent lots of my childhood grew up in, in Wyoming and used to hunt sage grouse when I was a kid in the, in the eighties, spent a lot of time with my, uh, old yellow, uh, not yellow lab, sorry, black lab. I have a yellow lab now too. I have my black lab at the time when I was a boy, he, he spent some time with some sage grouse too. Um, well, cool. There's a couple different things you touched on there that I want to see where we can interface this discussion. And that is some of the programs that are designed to conserve prairie habitat. Um, some of the ways that, that we ought to try to help people understand what those are and what they do. And I'm thinking of things like, you know, the Farm Bill and CRP, you mentioned Conservation Reserve Program, how they could help, uh, you know, conservation of the lesser prairie chicken. There's also the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. There's this proposed Grasslands Act. I know the National Wildlife Federation and, and our partners, Ducks Unlimited and, and Pheasants Forever and, and you folks that, that we've been working on trying to get that program over the, over the line. I'd like to talk with you about how some of those could interface with this, you know, conservation 
effort to get lesser prairie chicken back. So let's talk about, you know, I'll let you pick which one you want to start with first and I'll, and I'll continue to prompt you on the rest of them and how they may interface. Yeah. Your list is awesome. Let's talk about all of them uh, briefly. Uh, But I want to start with uh, USDA's uh, the farm bill programs, conservation reserve program. It's a program where uh, in this case, say ranchers get paid to not convert to ag, to tilled agriculture, and to reduce grazing, which is exactly what lesser prairie chickens need. It's so effective that uh, lands enrolled in the Conservation Reserve Program over the last couple of decades in western Kansas, many hundreds of thousands of acres, today provide the greatest remaining stronghold for lesser prairie chickens. So the point is, we've already done this before. We've already conserved lesser prairie chickens using existing tools. We've been successful. So it's not like we don't know how to do it. It's not like we can't do it. We just need to have the collective will to focus our energies in the right places with the right landowners using the right suite of compensations uh, to, to get them to uh, continue to do what they've been doing for, for a couple of decades now. And that's real important. You know, Aldo Leopold uh, in his book, A Sand County Almanac, which I think all of your listeners here should read if they haven't already, uh, mentioned the need to reward the private landowner for producing a public good. The public good is the conservation of the last best places of Southern Great Plains prairie ecosystems through the Conservation Reserve Program and many others, all that you mentioned. Um, we just need to redouble our efforts to do that. And recently, the, the CRP program has been eroded by uh, reduced compensation rates. Uh, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, which implements the program on the ground, has had staff cuts after staff cuts after staff cuts. And if we're going to you know, protect our collective interests in prairie ecosystems in the southern southwestern Great Plains, it simply takes uh, a, a collective will to invest ourselves in doing that. And, and like I say, we can and, and we will. I, I believe we will because protecting these last best places is important enough. And that's the alarm bell has been rung again by the Fish and Wildlife Service yesterday, proposing to list chickens under the act. And it's time for us to answer that bell. Well, good. I appreciate you saying that. I know we've worked, NWF has worked a lot on trying to get um, some more funding for the Conservation Reserve Program. It's a cool program and there's a lot of ancillary benefits for it too. So you know, if you don't till prairie or if you, you know, leave that nice riparian thicket down by your, by your stream, or, you know, even if it's just a, uh, an ephemeral wash that is, is a wetter place that, you know, often improves habitat for a lot of songbirds for, for these birds we're talking about also for fish, right? If you have those buffers where, you know, you're not putting direct erosion right into the streams. There's a lot of benefit for it for wildlife. And, you know, in some cases when commodities are low, like the crops, it, it helps those farmers and ranchers, you know, have another income stream and, and stay in agriculture. So there's a lot of benefits there and we'll continue to work on that. I'm sure you guys are are working on that one as hard as anybody. Um, but let's talk about how these other programs interface too. There's um, the Grasslands Act, and this is a new kind of concept that that mirrors a lot of the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, which is a program that has really helped wetlands and conserved ducks and 
really kept the ducks and, and waterfowl and a lot of water dependent species, you know, hanging on instead of being converted. Talk about what that would do and, and how that could help the lesser prairie chicken and, and other grouse too. Yes. And so that's really probably the next best thing to talk about. Um, and National Wildlife Federation has been the leader on this idea of a North American Grasslands Conservation Act. And again, we've done this before. We know how to do it. And you mentioned it, uh, the North American Waterfowl Conservation Act. Uh, we passed that, oh gosh, I don't know, in the mid 1900s sometime. And look at the tremendous benefits that's produced, protecting the prairie pothole region and so many other wetlands up and down North America or in the United States anyway. Uh, and we stopped and reversed the decline of many, if not most or all waterfowl species in North America because of that act of Congress and the investment we made in protecting waterfowl habitat. Uh, to have a North American Grasslands Conservation Act like National Wildlife Federation is championing would be uh, a, a sister act for grasslands to the North American Waterfowl Conservation Act. And so uh, if we were fortunate enough to get that, it would do exactly the kind of thing we're talking about right here. Stop the loss of grasslands and reverse reverse that decline and beginning adding grassland habitats back. And, and again, if I, I don't think I've said it this bluntly, grasslands are the most threatened ecosystem in North America. And it makes sense. We moved west. We went across the Great Plains and said, man, what a great place for agriculture. And agriculture is what we've done. I mean, you look at states like Iowa, you know, it's if it ain't in a city, it's under corn, right? I mean, I, I, I exaggerate, but, but <laughs> yeah. the point is, um, it's, it's, you know, uh, the Midwest has been the breadbasket of America. And it's one of the things that's made America great, right? I mean, let's, let's be honest. We, I like to eat. So do all your listeners. Um, but now we find ourselves with our, you know, species like lesser prairie chickens and other grassland birds and, and other grassland species with their backs against the wall. And so at what point did we say, okay, let's protect those last best places. Let's protect the last 10% or whatever it may be. And the North American Grasslands Conservation Act would do that. I urge all of your listeners to engage with the National Wildlife Federation and help support uh, that act getting introduced to Congress, first of all, it's early in its conception. And uh, your president, Colin Ameris, is doing a terrific job advocating for this. And so I urge all of your listeners to get on board and help NWF champion and others champion this, this cause. Pheasants Forever, all these other organizations are invested in the idea. And, and it, we're going to make it happen uh, if we continue with the spirit that we've got. Yeah, we have a lot of excellent partners and we have a resident expert beyond Colin's great work. Uh, one of our staffers, Aviva Glazer is just an amazing rock star on both the grasslands act, the farm bill, the conservation reserve program. We're lucky to have her in our ranks and I'll do a little promotion as in the near future, as the grasslands act gets closer here, we'll have Aviva on and a couple of our sporting partners. And we'll talk through a little deeper what that does, but maybe a high level overview. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Ted. Let me put my oar in the water on behalf of Aviva. <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for saying my name. I met her at the North American Wildlife Conference in March of uh, 2019. It was the week the country, the world shut down because oh, wow. of COVID. Uh, it was just emerging. Uh, I got on a plane on Sunday. And by that following Friday when I was flying home, uh, the 
uh, NBA, National Hockey League had shut down. The stock, mar stock market had crashed. <laughs> the world was coming to an end. Anyway, during that week, I got to meet Aviva, and I have immediately become her biggest fan. And recently, she's been uh, very helpful and supportive as we've been. All of our organizations have been preparing to respond to this Lesser Prairie Chicken Endangered Species Act listing announcement that happened yesterday. And she is my hero when it comes to the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. All of your listeners, all of your members should get to know who Aviva is and support her efforts on behalf of NWF and the, and the Grasslands Conservation Act. So, sorry, I just had no. To I'm happy to sing awesome. praises for Aviva. She's she's excellent. We we haven't worked together too much, but we are increasingly. And the more I get to know her and the good work she's doing, uh, the more impressed I am. So. I'm glad we got to shout out to her and, and that'll be a nice preview because we'll get her on here in a month or so uh, with some other sporting partners to really dive into what the Grasslands Act does. Um, let's talk to a little bit about climate change because we, we have been doing a lot of work trying to illuminate sporting voices around climate change with our vanishing seasons podcast series we're doing. Um, and there is implications of climate change within this lesser prairie chicken issue. And I want to, I want, it's just another opportunity for us to help folks understand our sporting pursuits, some of the species we really care about. Almost all of them are being impacted somehow. And I want to talk just a little bit about that, just to give folks yet another look at, at climate change impacts. Tell us a little bit about how that's happening with, with lesser prairie chicken. I Sounds great. I'll start with just a little broader scope about how I perceive impacts of climate change. And then uh, we'll talk about lesser prairie chickens a little bit, although, you know, long-term effects on lesser prairie chicken habitat maybe are a little bit less known or certain. But <clears throat> so here in, in Idaho, where I live, um, uh, the, the, the reality and, and the prediction is that we're going to have the same amount of annual precipitation where I live north of Boise. The difference is we're going to get less snow and more rain. Um, and that really is important because that means we have less snowpack, which means we have less spring runoff, and it really impacts things like salmon and steelhead in Idaho, right? Yeah. That's one example. Another is uh, overnight lows in much of the Rockies are warmer than they used to be. What that means is pine bark beetles don't get knocked back as much, which means we have wide swaths of forests throughout the Rocky Mountains that are killed by pine beetles, right? Now, similarly, uh, in the range of lesser prairie chicken, and, and these are landscape scale things. I mean, if you spend any time in the Rockies, you see like where I bowhunt elk in Idaho, white bark pine up high are just wiped out. Um, and now lesser prairie chickens, uh, to the extent that things will get warmer and drier, that is the greatest threat that lesser prairie chickens can face. And you look at habitats like in New Mexico and Texas at the southern end of the range, or southeastern Colorado, where it's dry, uh, the western edge of the range for lesser prairie chickens. And it just might be the case they don't hang on there. Now, I mentioned all the CRP land in western Kansas. That's the best place for, for prairie chickens. That is so far north in the historic range of lesser prairie chickens that it may actually be outside of the range, historic range of lesser prairie chickens. And it may be that both our efforts with CRP and the effects of climate change are already causing lesser prairie chickens to shift northward. And so uh, those are just some examples of how climate change will affect lesser prairie chickens. What it means for the future, you know, will, will, will the range of graders and sharpies continue to move north and they 
graders and sharpies kind of blink out to the south and then lessers inch northward behind them. You know, nobody knows these things, but uh, but it is tricky to manage, right? Because you don't want to run out of racetrack for lesser prairie chickens, uh, so to speak. You know, you need to know where to focus your restoration efforts. You know, you don't want to pour all your money in the extreme southern and western edges of the ranges of lesser prairie chickens only to find that 20 years from now they can no longer support lesser prairie chickens. Sure. And I think one of the things, you know, that maybe doesn't come to mind immediately, but it's like everything, right? Habitat first is, is important. And then if you have drought, for instance, the vegetation they feed on, the insects that they eat and rely on, those numbers are often, you know, everything is basically commensurate to the water. If there's water, more insects will survive, more more grasses will grow and, and seeds and all the other things that they need. And as we're seeing the the warmer temperatures, it's it's drying places up a little faster. And uh, so it's kind of a two-headed snake there. Let, let's talk about a couple other things, uh, Ted. So we've got this, this grouse issue, right? All of them are kind of, I mean, are any of them doing really well? And is there things we can learn from the other ones that, that we could apply to the lesser prairie chicken at this point? I mean, I'm, I'm most familiar with the sage grouse, obviously. Uh, and, and, you know, we've seen some success there in certain places, but still probably a declining species. The, the one nearest to me is the Gunnison sage grouse, a, a subspecies that's struggling really bad and uh, probably should be listed sometime soon too, uh, honestly and unfortunately. But is there things we know that we can do right now that, that'll help? Yeah, and great question. And you just spoke to this a second ago, Aaron, when you talked about habitat. You know, drought is not as much of an issue. Climate change is not as much of an issue where habitats are healthy. And this is where, you know, the state's uh, WAFA's program to address habitat quality is helpful. The more tall, thick native grasses and forbs you have, the more water retention in the soil you have, the more insects you have, the more lesser prairie chickens you have, the more resilient it is in the face of drought. You know, I refer to the dust bowls and the impact on lesser prairie chickens. It was enormous uh, because the land had been grazed to the nubbins and then we had a 10 year long drought, extreme drought. And, and there, there's no resiliency left in the landscape. So uh, same with these other species. If we, the, the larger, uh, tracts of landscapes we protect and the more effectively we protect them and the native grasses and forbs and uh, water quality and quantity functions uh, and uh, insects and other species. Um, and you mentioned before about the benefits of leaving riparian areas and stuff. And, you know, it also affects species we hunt. There's more pheasants there. There's more mule deer there. There's more whitetail there. Yeah. Um, and, and so the, the, it's, the, I'm sorry, I, I'm using too many words. My point is it's simple, you know, it, it's simple, large tracts of intact habitat that that's healthy and not degraded. It, it's, it's yeah. really, it's not rocket science by any means. Well, let's give folks some sense of that too. I mean, the American prairies, uh, you know, that stretch clear from the, the North American prairies really stretch clear from Canada all the way down to, you know, the Southern states, how big were they? And, you know, what, what are we down to? What, how far have we depleted those? And, you know, it, I think that's just giving folks a sense of how much we've lost really helps 
you know, create the the scope for this discussion a little bit too? Great question. I, I the as I say, you know, great Southern Great Plains prairies are the, the are prairies across North America are the most threatened ecosystem, and you know they used to stretch from Central Canada to Central Mexico. In fact, some of the grasslands in Mexico are just spectacular. Um, and so uh, it's also the easiest land to exploit. It's flat. It's got the right combination of water and productivity. Uh, like I say, America's breadbasket is not just America's, it's the world's breadbasket, really. So, um, and again, you know, for all of those people who like to eat, it's important that, <laughs> you know, we, we take advantage of these lands for those reasons. Uh, again, it just comes down to how much is left. Uh, what do we have uh, and what do we want to conserve? You know, do we want to use up the last 10% or not? Um, this happened with spotted owls too. Remember, maybe folks remember in the 1980s, the spotted owl wars, they were called. Um, and, uh, you know, timber enthusiasts said, oh my God, it's the end of the world. We're shutting down logging to protect owls. Well, really the question is, was do we shut down logging of old growth forests this decade or do we do it next decade when we cut the last tree, right? And the decision was made in part through the Endangered Species Act. All right, we're going to stop logging these old growth forests this decade and save the last 10%, which frankly, I'm grateful for. Uh, and I'm sorry for loggers that they didn't get 10 more years of logging old growth, but uh, at the same time, it would have been a pretty sad country and planet to live in if we got rid of all the Pacific Northwest old growth. Same with our prairie ecosystems. Are we really going to lose the last best places, the last 10% as represented by lesser prairie chickens, this landscape scale species? Or are we going to step up and say, um, let's work with those landowners who own the last best 10% and provide them with incentives to continue to provide that, those ecosystem services to the rest of the nation? Yeah, and I think the numbers are something like 70% of our grasslands and prairies have been lost in the United States. Is that an accurate number? Um, I, yeah, uh, I, I guess I've even heard numbers above that, but uh, depends on how you measure it. And, and so, yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. Yeah, so that's a heck of a lot of, uh, of land there uh, that, that, you know, these, these birds and other grouse and, gra- you know, grassland species used to have that they, that they don't anymore. So these, these private programs are, are such a key here. Um, what about a good story, Ted? What, you know, these birds are, are really unique little birds and all grouse are, I think uh, it'd be cool. Yeah. So, so, um, you know, I, uh, I grew up in Connecticut and, uh, the first critter I ever hunted and shot was a pheasant, uh, which are non-native, right? Um, but uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And so uh, bird hunting kind of got into my blood early, although I'd never done a, a lot of it. But uh, then I moved to Idaho and, of course, forest grouse are the thing. And one of the things I love to do is shoot uh, blue or now dusky grouse with my bow and arrow when I'm bow hunting elk. I always make sure I carry a blunt. And that's always a kick. Um, but I think one of my favorite grouse hunting moments was when my son had just turned 12 and was able to hunt here in Idaho. And I had a white-tailed deer tag in my pocket. So uh, I took my 12-year-old son and 10-year-old daughter with me. My wife is off doing something else. And we went to chase uh, whitetails together. Um, and uh, I didn't end up getting a whitetail, you know, chasing whitetails with a 
10 and 12 year old in tow is, you know, less, uh, can be less productive than doing it <laughs> with your best hunting buddy, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's more fun in so many ways and including this yeah. way. So we're out at, we, knowing that we might come across, uh, some blue or rough grouse or even spruces where we were. Um, I threw a shotgun, uh, into the vehicle before we headed up to central Idaho from our home in Boise. And it wasn't just any shotgun. It was my great grandfather's 410 shotgun, single shot, 410 shotgun, a little break action, Harrington Richardson shotgun. Uh, and so I threw that in with some shells. Sure enough, we're running around looking for white-tailed deer and right on the side of the road is a ruffed grouse. And so I pulled over and said to my son, Shane, I said, Shane, you ready? You want to hunt this grouse? And this is back when we had our first lab, who was a black lab and her name was Akila. And uh, so my son said, yeah. So we get out of the car. I take this shotgun, this special shotgun out of its uh, brittle old uh, fabric case, like hot, duck cotton canvas case. We put a shell in and we stalk down off the bank of the road into the brush. And there's the grouse sitting there on a limb. And uh, I said to my son, okay, when you're ready, raise the gun up, look down the barrel like you practiced and shoot it. Bam! And the grouse, grouse drops dead <laughs> just like that <laughs> before I could, I mean, I just barely finished my instructions and my son was like three steps ahead of me. Bam. Our dog Akila runs over, grabs the grouse, brings it back to my son. And my son is over the moon and my daughter is excited and impressed. And they kneel down in the brush and with our dog sitting between them and the grouse. And my daughter's got her hand on the grouse and my son's holding it. And he's got the, his great, great grandfather's. 410 shotgun broken open over his knee and I will forever remember that picture. Um, and so I took that picture. So we get up in the car, we load up and my son's got the grouse in his lap in the back seat and we're driving on the road. And I'm like, man, you really did that Shane. That was great. One shot Shane. I'm going to call you, you know, and I'm pumping him up. Right. And so he's in the back seat driving down the road. He goes, one shot Shane, one shot Shane. Boy, dad, this grouse sure is pretty. One shot Shane. His feathers are beautiful. And I shot it. And he starts crying. <laughs> and I said, buddy, it's okay. You should feel that way. I feel that way when I kill animals, you know, and, and it's okay. And he's like, well, yeah, I'm glad I shot it. It's just, it's just that, you know, it's really beautiful. It sure is. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah. These feathers are so pretty. Gosh. And look at it. Oh, it's so neat. One shot Shane. One shot Shane. <laughs> So there at age 12, he used his great, great grandfather's shotgun and felt the peak of elation down to the depths of the sadness when you take an animal's life back to the, the elated feeling and all in his first 20 minutes as a hunter. It was an awesome, awesome experience. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. That is an excellent story. Uh, yeah, there, there's a few things that came to mind when you were telling that story. I, one is, you know. That's one of the things that I try to convey to folks who don't hunt too is how it connects you with these species, right? You're, you're out there and you learn something. I mean, why would he have ever gotten to see a grouse up close like that if he wasn't hunting it? And then his appreciation for it just grew kind of instantly. And then, you know, he's a grouse, yeah. he's a grouse conservationist now and he can follow dad's footsteps too. Totally. So that's a beautiful thing. Um, totally. And then that family history too. I love that. Yeah. 
Yes. And so there's a follow-up to this story too. So <clears throat> we kept the tail feathers and I bought a, like a window box picture frame, they call it, you know, where it's offset. And I mounted that tail fan in there and I put the picture of he and his sister and our dog in there and wrote in the caption at the bottom, one shot Shane. <laughs> and to this day, that, that was 20 years ago. No. Well, uh, 18 years ago to this day, that is his favorite Christmas present ever. Wow. That's awesome. I, I, I love stories like yeah. that. My, my father carries around his grandmother's 20 gauge, his old pump 20 gauge, and he, he hasn't given it over to me yet, but I hope one day maybe he will be my great grandmother's 20 gauge. And he's a, he's a dead eye with that too, more than any other gun. I don't know what it is. It's that particular shotgun that he just shoots like nothing else. It's the love. Yeah, perhaps. Um, well, let's talk about a couple other things before we wrap up. And that is, you know, I always like to say, hey, what can we do? What can an average Joe or Jane, you know, get out there and do to help help this species? And we'll tell you a little bit about, too, there's there's some public opportunities to, to learn a little bit more about this listening session. Uh, sorry about this listing. I'm, I'm reading listening session and then saying listing at the same time. Uh, but but. In your mind, what should folks be doing who say, I want to help the lesser prairie chicken? Yeah, great question. And uh, in this case, um, advocate for better farm bill program implementation. Uh, and there's um, different ways to do that. You know, reaching out directly to agencies if you are in the area and asking, you know, for that kind of service, particularly if you're a landowner, but even if you're just an Oklahoman or a Kansan and reach out to your local NRCS offices and say, Hey, what about this endangered species act listing? I hear you can do something. Um, the other thing is support, especially national wildlife federations lead, but all other NGOs uh, efforts on the North American grasslands conservation act that would just turn the corner in so many ways, just like, uh, we did for wetlands so many decades ago. Uh, and then lastly, I think, try to figure out how to support, uh, you know, rural ranchers. There's uh, uh, Western Landowners Alliance is an organization that supports them. That's a really good outfit. They work a lot with National Wildlife Federation as well. Uh, <clears throat> try to think of ways to support these people and appreciate these people who hold the key to the last best places for Southern Great Plains prairie ecosystems. Yeah, that's good advice. I think those are true. I'm going to a local land trust board here and you know we're keeping a lot of stuff out of development and uh you know so getting this getting crp fully funded and and that's going to be a huge one and we'll we'll definitely provide our listeners and followers of nwf outdoors with some more information as those develop i should say too there's a on july 8th the fish and wildlife service is holding an information session and a public hearing in the evening um, we'll put links in the show notes to to take a look at that, and we will also uh, put put links to uh, the North American Grouse Partnership. Is there anything else, Ted, that you think people should know before we let you go, or anything else you want to share with us? Um, yeah, you know, another group I haven't mentioned yet is the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. They're great players in this, and they they do a lot of advocacy around improved farm bill program implementation, as does NWF, and so. Uh, that's another way to get involved. I realize this is an opportunity for a shameless plug for the North American Grouse Partnership. Uh, we're a pretty, 
uh, small organization. In fact, uh, I managed to bring the entire staff with me on this podcast today, and you've heard from all of them. <laughs> Just me. Uh, we're a we're a small group, but our our strength is in coordinating with groups like National Wildlife Federation, TRCP, Pheasants Forever, and others. Um, but, uh, but I would just say, you know, grasslands are next. Grasslands need our love. They need our help now. I mentioned all grassland birds. Well, no. Grassland birds are declining more than any other group of birds. All grassland prairie grouse are declining, whereas other grouse, not so much necessarily. Um, you know, blue grouse, blue grouse, rough grouse in the right places are doing but hold, hold steady. Uh, but it's the prairie ecosystems that are most threatened for the reasons we've discussed. And I urge all of your listeners to find ways to, to care and to pay attention. It's not the rocks and ice wilderness that people like to go backpacking in. Um, you know, some people call the Midwest the flyover states. I think that's uh, one of the most spectacular moments I ever had was driving west on I-80 through southern Nebraska in I think early March, as the waterfowl migration season was just coming on, I remember driving 30 miles an hour on the side of the interstate, looking at the skies filled with waterfowl in the Great Plains and <clears throat> the heartland of our nation. And so people should care and they should learn and they should get involved and learn how to love these places because they, they deserve it. They're spectacular. I love it. That's that's awesome advice, and uh, we should also give a shout out to to one more staffer at NWF, and that's our our friend and colleague Lou Carpenter, who is on your board there at the North American Grouse Partnership, and and Lou connected us uh, for this conversation. So appreciate that from Lou as well. Um, well, I'll let yeah, I was <laughs> go ahead. I, I, again, I've just got a second that I was trying to figure out how to to uh, wrap Lou into the conversation and you just laid it out there perfectly. Lou has been such a, a valuable asset to the board of the North American Grouse Partnership from his sensibilities and his connections, including, you know, putting us in touch, for example, uh, but, but in many other ways as well. Also, uh, he has mad skills as an editor and a magazine publisher. And, uh, you know, we put a Grouse Partnership puts out a magazine once a year and uh, he was instrumental in our getting that out uh, in a really successful way this year. So Lou's been an incredibly valuable addition to the, to the grouse partnership. And I know he brings a lot of value to national wildlife federation too. So thanks for mentioning Lou. Yeah. Good guy, good friend, good guy to spend some time afield with. Um, and, uh, uh, we haven't seen enough of one another through the pandemic. We actually connected up in a parking lot in Denver when I had to be there <laughs> for something else, just to spend some time together a few months ago, because we hadn't seen one another for a while during the pandemic. But, uh, We've got some plans to fish and get out this year, so Good. hopefully we're we're back to normal, and and hopefully our paths can cross one day here soon too. Ted, I uh, appreciate the work you're doing, and let's keep let's keep chugging away, and let's keep thinking about more opportunities to work together and and get this great work done, and get this species and and the others that will benefit from things like the Grasslands Act uh, back and rolling, and part of our American wildlife that's thriving. Awesome, thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Ted. Take care, man. We are NWF Outdoors.